0: You're listening to Sports Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. We have 8 to 10 clubs across the country. There are 16 supporter groups that we know of right now across the country. We haven't made those. They've emerged on their own. So in the last 30 years, we fueled 30% of our population through uh, immigration. And those people are crying out for this. And we don't have any illusions about being world beaters overnight, but we saw how quickly the MLS clubs in Canada were able to overtake the CFL clubs in terms of hearts and minds and people's passions.
1: Hi there. Now, Paul Byrne is a serial builder of Canadian sports organisations. He was employee number 13 at the Toronto Raptors basketball team, employee number one at current MLS champions Toronto FC, and he was also first in the door at the Canadian Premier League. The CPL will launch in April 2019 with Byrne as president. In this conversation, we talk about the compelling metrics behind the league's formation, the role the fans are playing in building it from the ground up, the specific Canadian solutions they're searching for, and the content strategy they'll need to tell their story. As ever, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow on Instagram, at Sport Digital and Social, all spelt out. And then there's my website, Mr. Richard Clark, for my other podcast, Football Indonesia, my blog, or to contact me. There's links in the show notes to everything. Anyway, here's Paul Byrne with the story of the soon-to-be Canadian Premier League.
0: My name's Paul Byrne. I am the president of the new and still-launching Canadian Premier League in Canada.
1: Thanks for speaking to me, Paul. So, just give me the nuts and bolts of this league, because it's not launched yet. It's launching 2019, so... What's going to happen at launch time, how many teams, your season, all those nuts and bolts and basic stuff, because people might not know it.
0: So the Canadian Premier League will kick off in uh, April of 2019. We'll make that official in a few weeks, so your uh, listeners are getting a little bit of a scoop, but it's kind of an open secret. April of 2019, we're going to start with somewhere between eight and ten clubs from coast to coast in Canada. Halifax on the east and Vancouver on the west are, are likely the, uh, the regions that we're going to be in. And um, we're going to play in an April to October time frame. Canada is uh, a wide and varied place. and We can't really play into November and we can't really play in March. So we're looking at a six-month playing season plus another month and a bit for uh, a preseason, which will
1: probably take place in a
0: warmer climate.
1: So why now? Why do it now, the Canadian Premier League?
0: Well, there's a confluence of reasons. One of them is Canada is the largest, highest GDP nation in the world without its own domestic league. We are crying out for a domestic league. Contrary to public, uh, popular opinion, hockey is not our number one sport in Canada, or ice hockey, I mean, for your listeners. It is actually soccer or football. And uh, so we have incredibly high participation rates. We have very good training infrastructure up to a point. 14, 15 year olds, they tend to drop out of soccer because there is nowhere for them to go. We have three clubs in Canada who are playing in Major League Soccer. That's an American league. Its rules and its uh, aspirations are all about the development of the American player, and they do a very good job of that. But they're unashamed about that, and and as they should be, they have a mandate about developing the American game. They are America's domestic league. And uh, as a result, we have had some successful Canadians in that league, but it's almost in spite of the systems, not because of the systems. And what we're really trying to do is complete the top of the pyramid for Canada. So we are Division One for Canada, and uh, you know we'll find our own level, and I think our level will improve over time. But we're not we're not comparing ourselves to any other leagues around the world, not just yet.
1: Yeah, you might not be comparing. I think people are always going to look at the MLS as some sort of comparison or some sort of reference point. There's Montreal, there's Vancouver, and there's Toronto, the current champions. I've got experience of going to all these places with MLS, and they are very strong franchises, in my opinion, in MLS, relatively recent joins. So how do you fit around those clubs?
0: Well, Richard, you'll you'll recall when you were here, what was it about those clubs that made you think that they were good, strong clubs?
1: I thought they had a lot of passion. I thought they were well-organized. I remember speaking to some of the guys at one of the clubs and they were saying, well, they thought that while they wouldn't be above hockey anytime soon in terms of publicity, they were above the CFL. So they were making great strides in the community base. The passion for the game itself was so strong.
0: And that's, I kind of led you down the path there. That's exactly (laughs) why we believe that um, Canada is ready. Part of my background was I started Toronto FC. And uh, in the early days of Toronto FC, we heard all of the naysayers. We heard all of people at that point, they were comparing MLS to the best of the European football that is available on television here. And so you're right, there will always be comparisons, but there is a place for local football and there's a big gap in Canada right now. And we intend to occupy that gap. And we don't have any illusions about being world beaters overnight, but we saw how quickly the MLS clubs in Canada were able to overtake the CFL clubs in terms of hearts and minds and and people's passions. They didn't replace them, right? The Canadian CFL clubs are still an important part of our culture, and they have their own following. But there's an opportunity for us to occupy a different space in people's hearts. And there's loads of football fans across the planet and there's loads of football fans in Canada. You know, Canadians, we bring in 300,000 newcomers every year, and, and our immigration policy is very aggressive. All of those people are coming from footballing nations, where football is the number one or the number two sport, And uh, because most, most nations in the world are of that ilk. You know, football is the number one or number two sport for in people's hearts and minds. And, uh, yeah, that's 1% of our population. So in the last 30 years, We've replaced 30% of our, or we've 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 fueled 30% of our population through uh, immigration, and uh, and those people are crying out for this.
1: As you said, you were number one employee at TFC Toronto FC, and you were number one employee at the CPL. A little notable first or a couple of firsts you got there. What lessons did you learn, particularly? I'm thinking about in digital social media content from your time at Toronto that you're going to transfer across. As president of the CPL well
0: I've often said that I don't think Toronto FC would have achieved the success it did at the outset without the internet and without the 2006 version of social media the opportunity for diehard footy fans to find each other across the city and across our province, emerged through social. And it, at that time, you know, Twitter was still quite new. It may not even have been launched at the very, very beginning. It was more about message boards and, uh, and places where like-minded people could find each other. And, uh, you know, from that came supporter groups and supporter functions and the opportunity to go out and start to build a lifestyle and a culture around the game. Something that, you know, people in England would take for granted. That your, your love for your club is a lifestyle choice and it takes up a lot of time and a lot of your effort and a lot of your, your share of your mind, you know, if you will. And uh, we needed the Internet to help us connect those people or to help those people connect to each other and, uh, and to start something. Now, fast forward, we're 12 years on and we're now talking about replicating the same type of phenomenon across the country.
1: Well, you say it's a lifestyle choice in England. It's actually not a choice. It's passed on from family to family. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. an Arsenal fan. I have got no choice of being an Arsenal <laughs> fan because my father indoctrinated me. And believe you me, my son will never wear anything blue and white. And that's the end of it. Um, <laughs> but but <laughs> leaving, leaving my personal issues aside and getting back to the case of that, you've also talked about using Twitter and social media in particular to start fan groups to have an element of control over the new franchises because it's only Hamilton and Winnipeg that are announced as we stand, I think I'm right in saying, but those other ones, am I right in thinking you're throwing some of this out to the supporters groups to help evolve their own clubs should they be granted a franchise?
0: Uh, That's a peculiar way of putting it. They've happened on their own. You know, we've we've started to talk about the opportunity for a Canadian Premier League. We've approached our federation, the Canadian Soccer Association, a year ago at their annual uh, general meeting. And so we created the league and then we asked to become members of the association. That's, you know, it's part of the process. If you're governed by FIFA... You know, it's just a a part of the process that needs to occur. In addition, those two clubs, Hamilton and Winnipeg, were two that were ready, that they had their venue and they had their governance and they had all of their their ducks in a row. So we we, uh, or they, excuse me, applied for membership in the National Federation as well a year ago. There's another National Federation meeting coming up in May and the other clubs that we have will apply for membership then. So, you know, I mentioned eight to 10 clubs and the reason I'm putting uh, some variability in there is there are a few that are at the altar with their local government about building a stadium or acquiring a piece of land or, or, you know, so so some may not be ready for 2019. They may wait till 2020. And uh, so we have eight to 10 clubs across the country. There are 16 supporter groups that we know of right now across the country. We haven't made those. They've emerged on their own. This is exactly the organic type of uh, connection that people have to their club. And, And this is exactly why we are very bullish about it. You know, as an example, there's a city right next to Toronto called Mississauga. Mississauga has a supporter group. We don't have an owner. We don't have a building. We don't have a project there. We just have a supporter group. But what they've done is stir the, the public's imagination, and they're doing a great job of you know, poking local politicians and, and making the creation of a, a public space for the purpose of playing football matches a priority for their local politicians. So it's great to see, and it's great for us to be able to point to that as we go and, and try and encourage uh, new owners to come out of the woodwork and, and get involved with this.
1: So you're right. I did phrase the question a little bit clunkily in the sense that I thought you'd thrown it out to them. It's actually not. It's organic. They are growing up independently. And almost the movement is asking for official support from a terms of an ownership group. And then you'll apply to go into the league. So it's truly organic. And that that's an incredible thing. And that's a real power of social media, isn't it? And allowing fans to organize in that way.
0: Absolutely. It is, as you say, truly organic. It is from the grassroots and it's demonstrating that anybody can create their own club. You know, we're we acknowledge that we're coming about this from a bit of a backwards perspective, you know, in England and in other footballing nations with a top tier and a second tier and a third tier that have emerged over generations. It kind of I know that it sounds odd to you to just sort of create a top tier league. Poof, it's just going to show up one day. But that's what we have to do in this country. We need a significant influx of uh, money. <laughs> it costs a lot of money to run a league in this nation. We A, we don't have a ton of infrastructure, so we need to build stadiums. B, we have an enormous nation that is uh, very costly to traverse. And we have a sparse population that is spread out among that enormous geography. So these are these are unique Canadian challenges. And we have to come up with a unique Canadian solution to, uh, to address them. And so this is our approach is we're, we're starting with 8 to 10 teams at the top. Our aspirations are to um, grow quite aggressively so that by 2024 or 2026, we're up to 16 teams. At that point, we will um, sort of put a cap on our growth. This is today's perspective. Don't quote me in 10 years. Our vision is to put a cap on our growth and now to start to develop a second tier and so the newcomers who come into the league at that point, we might have an 18 second division. And maybe ultimately we'll have a 16 at the top and 8 to 12 in the second tier. There is an existing third tier that is starting to emerge. So it's interesting. We have our youth clubs are starting to create high level um, community engagement and, uh, and community clubs. And then we have these, these divisions at the top and we're going to try and connect them over time. But we understand that that's a generation and a half away.
1: And what sort of criteria are important in terms of granting franchises in the end? Because, you know, I'm going to look at MLS again because it is similar in the way that you're growing it in terms of here's a league, franchises apply. That model is the same. And you've got issues that were became important were soccer-specific stadiums, downtown stadiums, obviously supporter group and ownership and all that kind of stuff. But what are those sort of basic criteria are you looking for from your successful franchise applicants uh,
0: I think again in our first generation call or for our first tranche of clubs, a sizable community, so over five hundred thousand people, an engaged community one where where soccer participation and the demographics of that that region point to an uh, a healthy football market, and then um, strong and stable ownership and a uh, a venue that is suitable for you know, ultimately, we're applying the same standards as Concacaf Champions League. Our clubs will all play in the Canadian Championship, which will qualify us to play into Champions League. So, from the outset, you know, we need to have the same uh, standards from a spectator safety perspective and also from a uh, from a footballing perspective.
1: Yeah, massively important that Canadian Championship role, but also if you've got tiers, if you've got divisions, then you've got promotion and relegation. You're enticing franchises in, ownership groups in, and I've seen some quotes around saying you're appealing for the potential ownership groups to see the longer picture here and the good of the game. It's an interesting approach, and it's different from MLS and some other leagues around the world.
0: Uh, well, it's not different from most leagues, and uh, you know what we're trying to do is to be authentic to the global game. There are nuances from nation to nation, for sure. But what, again, like I said, we're trying to come up with a unique Canadian solution that makes sense for today to allow us to get off the ground and demonstrate that we're stable and get good, strong foundation under us and, and allow a footballing culture to emerge among the supporters. This whole thing is fueled by the people who sit in the stands. For a European to imagine their nation without football, without professional football, and then to all of a sudden flick a switch and have professional football the next day it's inconceivable because as you said it's you know it's not even a lifestyle for you it was just handed to you and you have no choice that dynamic doesn't exist in our nation yet it does in toronto it does in vancouver and montreal because those clubs and it's only one generation so they've only been around for 11 or nine or eight years i think well but the, that, the,
1: the whitecaps had the previous generation
0: but oh, yeah. fair enough. And as did Montreal. And, you know, Toronto had a number of uh, previous goes at it. Goes? Previous <laughs> attempts at it. But the point being that, the, you know, in their current iteration, they're still quite young. But the, it's amazing how quickly a very healthy football culture can emerge in a city and among, in, in communities.
1: What's the media interest been like because as you said canadian soccer has been strong in terms of participation but there's been no professional league so are you going to have to go out and entice media interest or is it there already and and is content part of that a very aggressive content strategy
0: yes it is and yes it is so the media attention to this is um they're crying out for it across the country we forget uh, i live in toronto it's a our major market and uh It's also a very crowded market. But in most of our communities across the country, that's not the case. And so we are very much on people's radars. And and there's a ton of interest publicly, politically, corporate sponsorship-wise, and from a media perspective. In terms of our media strategy, we believe that we're at a very unique point in time. We have some great content, Canadian content. We've just created a new agency called Canadian Soccer Business, which has acquired the rights to all of uh, not only our Content so all of our matches across the country, but also the Canadian Soccer Association. So there, that means the Canadian Championship, the men's national team, and the women's national team matches. And so we now have a, uh, if you will, a basket of goods to take to the media market, and uh, it's a very interesting opportunity for us, and a very interesting opportunities for the for the big media companies. The other thing that is happening right now is, of course, we're at the intersection between the cable industry starting to redefine itself and starting to understand what their future looks like and then a very disruptive streaming industry where there are a lot of players and there are, is a lot of disruption right now that disruption i think will create opportunities for us
1: yeah i mean i've seen it i was looking on message boards and researching for this interview and people were talking about well rather than going and trying to find a broadcaster or a traditional broadcaster you'll find a canadian solution there's youtube there's does Zone have a, or a streaming platform that has a, a visibility in Canada? Are you looking to think outside the box in terms of this as well and streaming solutions rather than traditional broadcast deals for your live content?
0: Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, traditional broadcast deals are almost Gone the way of the dodo, right? There's just so many, so many people, and especially in our demographic, the the young professional who don't even have cable anymore—they're you know cord cutters or cable cutters. Consumers just want to get the content that they want when they want it, where they want it, and so streaming has to be considered to be part of that mix. And so I I I hesitate to predict where we're going to land. I think we're gonna I think there's probably will be a hybrid. You know, our biggest matches might be in one. Have have what sort of one profile for accessibility and our or the, the majority of our matches, the other matches, might have a different profile. It just it's hard to predict at this point.
1: And in terms of content, if you look at the Premier League, the clubs have always been traditionally very strong in terms of creating content, so you didn't need a central hub. MLS Digital exceptionally strong and the clubs are now catching up and being strong in their own right. Are you going to be in a situation where you have a central content hub and you have to help clubs until such time as they can stand on their own feet?
0: I think so. Yeah, I think that only makes sense for our clubs to uh, pool their resources and, and to learn about this industry. You know, there's no rule book and there's no uh, guidebook for these things anymore, and they're changing every day. So I, I think it makes sense for us to have a, a central component to this to help us capitalize on you know, to get fewer people but better people in charge of these things and and have the right types of content and measure effectively and understand exactly what our fans want.
1: Do you think in a sense we wouldn't be in this position, you wouldn't be in this position if YouTube didn't exist and the 10-year-old Canadian kid who's interested in soccer can see Messi and Ronaldo and Manchester United as easily as anyone in Manchester or Spain? It seems to have opened up the football globe, the soccer globe, and increased people's expectation and made them demand their own league almost? Uh,
0: You mentioned YouTube. I I don't know if it's YouTube, but it's certainly the accessibility of all of these great leagues and great matches. Um, But even back in 2005, when I was originally researching for Maple Leaf Sports for Toronto FC, one of the interesting factors we, we uncovered was that Toronto, in particular, had access to more live games than any European city. Really? Think about that. Oh. Yeah, because in England, in 2005, you got England games, and you got some Champions League games, but you didn't have every other nation. And the same could be said for many clubs, but, or for many nations. In Toronto, you had to look for them. And, you know, there was, as an example, there was a pay-per-view tier for, specifically for Portuguese football. I didn't know it existed until I started doing this research, and why would I? But it was available here, somehow you could get it, and uh, in the Italian league and, and a bunch of South American leagues as well. I think Toronto and maybe Canada in some ways, because of our, you know, the breadth of the immigration that we have, actually has worked harder and has been leading edge in terms of being able to acquire global gains early on. So all that to say. Yeah, you know, the other factor that, that impacts this is the FIFA game, the EA Sports game, which is another great Canadian export. It's created right here in Canada, and uh, it is the largest video game on the planet. Not only is it a large video game, but it's also played more regularly than any other game. So, you know, other games come and go. They, ha- they do great numbers. People play them, they finish them, and they put them on the shelf. The FIFA game is always in, you know, a player always has that game in their, uh, in their console.
1: Yeah, I remember reading that story about FIFA being uh, having a big Canadian bent to it. And um, mm-hmm. does that mean you're going to be especially observant of the esports genre? I uh,
0: think we will. I'm not sure we will get into esports leagues right at the outset, but I certainly think it's important for us to have our ear to the ground and to understand that culture and, uh, and to find ways to work within it and to he- enhance it. Just like if you watch a lot of football on TV – We are your local opportunity to see it live and to experience it in in real life. That same statement applies to gaming, right? If you play hours and hours of the game, but you really want to experience it live, well, here we are.
1: Of course, there's a lovely potential cadence coming up because you start in 2019, you get yourself going, you grow, expand. Then there's the possibility of that World Cup, which is U.S., Mexico and Canada, 2026, would give you a
0: it's Canada, Mexico, and US.
1: <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> it's alphabetical, is it? I forgot to say. <laughs> anyway, there'll be games being played there if you do get it, and it would be a huge boost at a very, a very nice time. That sort of six, five, six years in, seven years in, when you've uh, become established, got your feet on the ground. Nice potential.
0: Absolutely. There's, there's no question that it energizes people's imaginations and uh, not just supporters, but broadcasters and potential partners as well. Having said that, we are equally bullish on the prospects of the Canadian, the Canadian men's national team program. You know, with an expanded pool of teams in the World Cup, uh, in the past, Canada has had to be top three in CONCACAF in order to qualify for the World Cup. Now we need to be top six you know, so we don't have to beat Germany, we need to beat Honduras. And uh, I think that is a, there's a pathway for us to achieve qualification for the World Cup in 2026, whether or not we're hosting. And uh, frankly, I think it's possible for us to do it in 2022. Because the other factor that has changed our national team prospects is the uh, introduction of the, the Nations League here in CONCACAF, similar to the one in Europe, where, you know, there's 41 nations in CONCACAF, And in the past, we had this hex format where 35 nations would be eliminated in the first year of a four-year cycle. And that means you've got three years where you're playing friendly matches, you're struggling to get games, they're not meaningful, your players are not playing in front of passionate big crowds. This Nations League flips that on its head, and it makes almost every game meaningful, and it keeps our country in the game, you know, in a potential qualifying spot for World Cup play. Much longer into the four year cycle. I think that dynamic alone will, uh, I think Canada is very well suited to really benefit from that. So now our home supporters can get to know the players. You know, we don't have a domestic league. So how do they get to know the names and the qualities and the personalities of, of our players if they're playing in second division Portugal or, or Scotland or wherever? We just don't have that opportunity. So this change in the Nations League combined with a new domestic league gives us an opportunity to all of a sudden, really capitalise on the creation of a new football culture that is already there. It's just lying nascent, and we just need to help bring it to life.
1: And I was reading, there was a possibility, it at least talked about, having a, a quota of young Canadian players in every, every squad, whether it's every starting 11, I don't know. Is that something you're looking at? Is that something you're open about? Because that directly leads into that youth development, that growth aspect.
0: Absolutely. Our purpose, you know, you mentioned movement before. We are definitely, this is definitely a movement across the country, and it is mo- a movement with a sense of purpose. We have a, if you will, a North Star, a guiding light, and that is that we are by Canadians for Canadians. And so that's not to say that we won't have any import players, but we will have a, an absolute dedication to the promotion of our domestic players. That means that we provide meaningful minutes, and training hours, and uh, and opportunities to shine in front of crowds for domestic players. That's fundamentally important to the growth of the game.
1: And the women's game as well. Of course, there was the World Cup not so long ago. Is there a, in the future, it's not immediate, I know, but would a women's league be part of your thinking? Because huge growth area in North America, women's soccer, of course, you'll know that.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to hesitate to um, put a time against this, yeah. uh, but it's definitely for all the reasons you just stated it's definitely something that's on our radar but we have to walk before we run and and so first thing we need to do is get this thing off the ground and and demonstrate that it's going to be stable and feasible and and allow that first generation of support to really uh emerge and uh and come to life
1: you talk about getting it off the ground well here's me in london i've been to canada a few times it's very very cold it's very big Stop it.
0: <laughs> it's
1: also, very hot in the summer. Oh, that's right. Okay, okay. So one of the pe- peculiarities you've got, obviously, the league is what April to October. So you're not going to be playing in Toronto in November and December like MLS did, and the Rapids won the one MLS Cup in Toronto. Um, I remember. Yeah, and uh, it was very cold. I was never not there, but I got told it was extremely cold. So it was.
0: It wasn't. You know, oh. that's that's a fallacy. It was five degrees on that game. I know because I managed that game.
1: Cold Sorry, for Denver. Five,
0: excuse me, five <laughs> five degrees Celsius. Right, okay. It was five degrees Celsius. So that is, that's about 36. No, that's about 47 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's not that cold for Denver. Denver gets more snow than Toronto. You know, it's a bit of a fallacy. However, Toronto is the southernmost major city in Canada. And there are a lot of cities further north and, and the, the weather patterns in our nation dictate that some cities get slammed. So that's the first thing. We have a compressed season april to october and some of our clubs are shaking their head at the idea of playing in april so you know there's always going to be pressure you know what happens if it snows what happens if there's inclement weather are we going to play with the orange ball all those types of things and again we have to think about player safety and spectator safety or fan safety and uh you know some of the other things it does get incredibly hot across the country in the summer in some of our cities there are mosquitoes as big as your head and uh so that's probably going to be a challenge
1: who's exaggerating now
0: (laughs) (laughs) and uh it's really the geography though it's really you know five and a half time zone the most an english club uh, will travel in champions league you know they'll do that once in a season you know and they might go um frankly i don't know what what the farthest
1: it'll be turkey or moscow i think turkey or moscow yeah so that's three time zones,
0: maybe, you know, it's, it's not a remarkably different, but our clubs will do it every week. And, uh, you came across this in major league soccer. There's a ton of travel in major league soccer and it's all done commercially and a lot of places you can't get direct. So yeah, you know, from Denver, you have to go to Chicago before you can go to Portland or something like that. Maybe that may not be absolutely correct, (laughs) but, but a lot of, a lot of places, Columbus as a general statement couldn't get to very many places direct so they had to go to Chicago or New York and then and they, you know they had to go to a hub and so we will have a bit of those challenges for sure with that amount of travel comes extra days in hotels which means you're away more than you are at home which means you you reduce your number of training days so all these things have an ex- exacerbating impact on the quality of uh, the environment the professional environment for our players and so we have to take steps to to make sure that we're addressing those and, uh, and dealing with those. Again, you know, Canadian problems need Canadian solutions.
1: Just a couple more. At this stage, what are you most worried about?
0: I don't have that gene where people, a lot of people have that they can focus on the downside. I only see the upside on this. So I'm going to give you a, a non-satisfying answer, which is I'm just excited. I'm just excited at the upside, at the possibilities and the opportunities. And I know that when Canada does qualify for the World Cup, I and my team here, we'll all be able to look back and say we had something to do with that. You know, Even if none of those players who are playing for Canada at that moment are playing in our league, they will have come through our league. They will have been a generation of players who were energized and stayed in the game longer and didn't switch at age 14 for hockey because they knew that there was an opportunity for them. That's what's most exciting
1: for me. And just lastly, flip it around and look to the future. This is huge legacy potentially for you because it's not about you personally, I know, but you were number one employee at Toronto and they've gone on to do great things. Obviously MLS champions in I was
0: I was also employee number thirteen for the Toronto Raptors. So I was in at the outset of that that club as well.
1: Right. So you're a professional starter of franchises. <laughs> it's, it's Brighton, I know you're at Brighton and you didn't start that, but uh, you were certainly involved in their evolution
0: uh, going yeah. forward.
1: And yeah. and they made a big leap in the last five or six years, 10 years, something like that. But you're employee number one here. So you've got the opportunity as a sports executive to really leave a legacy, particularly on Canadian sport, Canadian soccer. How important is that to you?
0: Well, hopefully you're hearing it in my voice. It's fundamentally important. It's not about the building of a business. The building of the business is what's required to create the building of the league but ultimately it's the building of the league and the impact that it is going to have on future generations you know we tell people we're not building this this isn't a five-year plan or a 10-year plan we're building this for the next hundred years and uh and if we can deliver on that then yes i will retire enormously proud for sure
1: paul burn thank you very much
0: thank you thanks for having me on You've been listening to Sport, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, MrRichardClark.com.